This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Terroir, the French word for the specific taste imparted to something, specifically wine, from the soil, geology, air, and water of a specific place. It's an old idea, but one that wild food advocates understand with a greater precision than others of us. What we call wildcrafting, gathering of plant materials for food, medicine, other utility, or ritual, is an age-old practice across all cultures. And ancient though it may be, it's also alive and well. As I speak to you, wild crafters are identifying, gathering, and preserving various botanicals. Pascal Baudard, born and raised in Belgium and now living and foraging in Los Angeles, California, grew up foraging as a part of his normal everyday. As a teenager, he wanted to become a garde forestier, or guardian of the forest, something akin to our forest rangers here in the U.S. The two terms, forest ranger and guardian of the forest, highlight some critical elements of good wildcrafting. Being intimately familiar and knowledgeable about the forest, caring and tending for the plants and animals there, understanding, working with, and protecting them, their life cycles, their future well-being, and their interwoven communities. Pascal is the author of The New Wildcrafted Cuisine, Exploring the Gastronomy of Local Terroir, published in 2016, and The New Wildcrafting Brewer, Creating Unique Drinks and Boozy Concoctions from Nature's Ingredients, published in 2018. Both books from Chelsea Green Publishing celebrate a life firmly connected to the place in which you live, to the food you eat and the spirits you drink. They provide not only philosophy, but also recipes, from ferments to infusions and spices, from beers to country wines, herbal meads, and natural sodas. Returning in many ways to the wisdom and ways of native peoples of his region, Pascal studied diligently for years before offering his own knowledge to the public as an educator, teacher, and writer. He's taken hundreds of classes from regional experts and native plants people, and he spent one full year eating nothing but local and native gathered and foraged foods. In our conversation, Pascal talks a lot about learning through studying, through observing, and through experimenting. He focuses on the aspects of foraging that are related to gardening, including being aware of which native plants that you might enjoy foraging that will do well in your garden, an extension of the wild, a well-stocked pantry of another sort. As we sit on the far side of the vernal equinox, when life is stirring, sap is rising, and chemistry of all kinds, in the soil and in the soul, vibrate on a renewed frequency, Pascal joins us via Skype from his home and garden in Los Angeles. Welcome, Pascal. Bonjour. I would like to start a little bit with your current sort of foraging practice and wild food love and experimentation. How do you incorporate this into your everyday? Um, yeah, how do you incorporate this into your everyday, Pascal? 
Right now, I would say that uh, foraging is probably, or wild food is probably 30 to 40 percent of my diet. Mm. Um, it's interesting, most in the Los Angeles area, I would say that, um, you know, 90% of what I forage are actually plants that originally came from Europe. They're actually non-native too. To give you some example, uh, what I'm foraging right now is a lot of dandelion, watercress, thistles. Uh, we start to have a lot of nettles coming up, mm -hmm. some mustard, wild radish. Uh, there's a large list of plants that are becoming available right now. How long have you lived in the area you're in right now? Uh, since 1992. And do you find that you return to similar spots over and over again throughout the seasons, throughout the years, because you now have a sort of sense of where you're going to find the foods you find on a regular basis? Yes and no. This is interesting. Uh, what's happening over the years is I'm actually getting pushed away from the city because of urban expansion and pollution. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because uh, it strikes me that that sort of returning to certain spots, mapping them out in your head, having a having a, a general kind of internal compass for where you find things and where you collect things it is almost like gardening on a kind of feral level. Totally, totally. But my practice also include uh, wild planting. Uh, I probably have 10,000 acres of private property that, I, that uh, I can go to. And I basically recreate gardens uh, with all the native plants that I use. And then in the wild, then I don't mind going for the non-native plant. Right. So it's, you know, that's the way I, kind of the way I do it. So basically I'm kind of doing probably what people used to do a long time ago, even the um, hunter and gatherer. I'm pretty sure because I do it automatically uh, that I would take some of the plant and create a little garden with it. Yeah, it is very reminiscent of early peoples in any area and how they tended to and watched and lived among the plants of their of their region. Mm -hmm. So this concept of foraging is so beautiful to me. It's it's still a little intimidating to me as well. And your your stated goal in your first book. So the first book is the Wild Crafted Cuisine in which you really kind of celebrate and delve into and encourage and teach about this art of foraging and then using the foods in different ways. And then the second book is The Wild Crafting Brewer, which is tangential to the first book in that you then are bringing drinks to the table, more or less, based on, um, based on this foraging um, foundational practice in your life. Your, your stated goal in your first book is to inspire people to explore more deeply the tremendous bounty nature offers all of us. Twigs, sap, barks, roots, insects, and more. It's a truly wild, creative, and fulfilling endeavor that has changed my life. So before we go into the book in depth itself, first talk about your earliest influences that taught you and encouraged you to incorporate this native wild food foraging practice into your everyday life, Pascal? 
Well, it started really as a kid. Uh, growing up in Belgium, uh, foraging was actually just part of life. It was an extension of the garden. So we used to have a very large garden. We used to raise on rabbits, on uh, chicken. Um, and my grandma used to send me, you know, go like, well, it's springtime. I know we have nettle. Why don't you go get some nettles? Uh, so we will make nail soup, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so it was completely normal. There was not this disconnection that we have with nature right now. So right. in Belgium, foraging for dandelion, hazelnuts, walnuts, all kinds of different wild green was just completely normal. So nature was looked at as an extension of, of the garden, uh, you know, as a also something that can provide food for you. So people were not disconnected uh, from nature as they are right now. So one of the things that strikes me right away is, you know, Belgium is not an enormous country, and it has, you know, a fairly healthy population of people. Talk about the practices you were, you were taught as a child, whether explicitly or more subtly than that. And I think it gets to a little bit of what you referred to in our, our first question, which was this idea of planting as you go or planning and planting as you go. Talk about how it is a traditional and common practice in Belgium, and yet you have not depleted the resources of these wild native or non-native plants. To be honest, uh, uh, you know, even in doing my time, it was still not very common to to go foraging my, you know, the elder, you know, the older people still knew, you know, quite a few plants that, you know, they will actually add to their, uh, to their pantry and, and use for creating a pantry. Um, but the new generation, which was already me at the time, uh, not, not a lot of people were doing it anymore. Mm. But I was, I was growing in such a tiny little town with nothing to do as a kid than just spending time in nature. It was completely, absolutely normal. Mm -hmm. In terms of depletion, foraging was not even making a dent in any way, shape, or form. And to this day, I mean, foraging even doesn't make a dent in any way, shape, or form. You know, the I, I see the main danger for nature is actually urban expansion and also large-scale farming. For example, here in California, nobody's doing it. Nobody's foraging. I can drive for like a whole day. I, have ne I will never see somebody doing it. So it's something that is super sustainable unless you start to go for commercial things like ramps um, or uh, fiddleheads. Mm -hmm. But it's always about money. I say foraging and, and trying to make money with it doesn't don't go well together. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are ways you can do it. You know, and I, I've worked with chef and restaurant for five years, but I would say that 95% of what they wanted was actually the non-native plants. Yeah. So, you, talk, you know, you're talking... And it makes sense because, you know, even when I was working in Los Angeles with those chefs, I was dealing with French chef, Italian chef. Um, so they're basically interested in the regular nettles, mustard, radish, you know, chervil, chickweed, the different type of wild sorrels. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, to some degree, it's actually good for the environment at mm -hmm. the same time. So, okay, tell us about your journey. What, what took you from Belgium and brought you to the United States and landed you in, of all places, Los Angeles? 
Well, I always wanted to do what I'm doing right now, which is really, uh, it's my passion is to, to study the flavor of a local environment. Uh, the problem was when I was in Belgium, nobody could teach me. Uh, forging was basically just a few people knew about it, but you didn't have any uh, forging teacher. You didn't have any books about it or ver very little information. So I ended up being a graphic artist. So I was a graphic artist for... 25 years, uh, and I met my first wife in uh, in Europe, and she was American. So we actually moved, and we moved to New York, and then from there we went to California, and I absolutely fell in love with the desert. As a graphic artist, well, Hollywood was also perfect for work too. So that's why I ended up in California. And what did you love about the desert? <sighs> you know, it's that's a tough one. It's it was really love at first sight, yeah, uh, the smell, uh, the look, this all this tan color, but the smell, the sages, the, the creosote. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to say to that one. It's, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know how to express that. Okay. Some people either love the desert or, or, or don't like it, and I just fell in love with it. Yeah. So when you first started taking up your own foraging practice in the LA area, what was what was that like? How did you how did you get started? How did you control for pollution and other maybe unsavory elements to your food foraging? Okay, so the first thing I did, I, I actually started in the in the '90s to get back to uh, to to study the local plant. And in order to study the plant, I basically did probably like 400 classes and workshop with anyone who would teach me. So locally, we probably have three or four people who teach wild plant, and also did classes with. Um, Native people. Um, I will sometimes even go to the store and bother Hispanic people, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to cook all those ingredients. So it was a lot of education, and I spent probably five years educating myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and and bit by bit, I just started to incorporate that in my life. I spent a whole year just pretty much eating wild food uh, full time. In terms of pollution, all that, it's interesting. It's I would say that first, I think a lot of the wild food that we actually, that I actually will pick up is probably much better than anything you would buy at the regular store. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's organic to start with, you know, so there is no chemicals on it. There is nothing sprayed on it. Um, the soil condition are probably much better. The, you know, nobody's been using it for, for a very long time. And I do watch for pollution, and believe it or not, you can go high-tech on that. You can use Google Earth and find out where the water comes from, for example. Yeah. You can also look at the environment. You, know, you can totally look at the environment and see if it is a place that, you know, people, you know, the city is spraying or not. I don't forage in public park anyway, you know. So mm -hmm. I actually find people uh, that have, the, you know, large property and I usually show up one day and I usually bring some of my wild beer with me and, you know, say hello can i talk to you you know and if you have wild beer believe me you can make a lot of friends very fast <laughs> it, it works i bet you can so you see that beer i made it what you have on your property yeah. like really then you become their best friends yeah okay so <laughs> but, yeah, describe yeah. describe a foraging trip describe one that you took recently and just how you get started what you look for how you collect and maybe what you collected 
Okay, so this is an interesting one. Uh, I have never had something like that, but right now we had two days of rain in one year, and we just had the whole area that burned down. Right. So it's extremely challenging. So what I'm doing right now is a little bit different. I'm actually uh, mostly recreating my garden at this point. I lost all my you know, native plant gardens that I used to use to make beer and spice and all that. So I basically just use the, you know, have to restart from scratch. Uh, but there is still um, a lot of non-native plants that I actually that I'm actually able to pick up. There is probably like 15 of them right now. My main interest is mostly to do some research on fermentation, uh, how I can take those non-native plants and kind of like create a whole fermented cuisine around it, mm-hmm. uh, mustard, radish, and all this stuff. I am also uh, doing a lot of research going back to my pantry because what people don't understand is that uh, studying wild food is not just about foraging but is actually about creating a large pantry of food and using a lot of different methods of food preservation because wild food is usually available it's not like a farm you cannot buy and you cannot find it at the store so your wild food is usually available for maybe two or three weeks, mm-hmm. and then it goes away. So it's basically always a bit of a race to actually pick up what you can, and then you find a way to preserve it. It could be, you know, lacto-fermentation, it could be pickling, it could be canning, dehydrating, freezing, preserving in vinegar, alcohol fermentation, you name it. Mm-hmm. And because of the drought and also the fact that uh, there is... You know, my garden are gone. Right now, I'm actually doing a lot of study on making cheese with nuts that I've collected during the year. You're talking acorn, walnuts, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I know. So, you, you know, I always look at nature uh, as a source of inspiration. And even like, when everything is gone, I'm still looking at it. I'm going like, okay, it's a challenge, but what can I do? What can I create? Right. So I'm kind of an artist a little bit. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're joined by Pascal Bodar, forager and local cuisine advocate. He's an educator, speaker, and author of the new wild-crafted cuisine, Exploring the Gastronomy of Local Terroir, published in 2016, and the new wild-crafting brewer, creating unique drinks and boozy concoctions from nature's ingredients, published in 2018, both from Chelsea Green Publishing. Currently, native plants and other locally foraged foods make up between 30 and 40% of Pascal's diet in and around Los Angeles. He describes his own journey to incorporating native and locally foraged plants into his everyday life as his own adventure in a year and in the way he perceives the environment, much of which he now sees as possibly tasty. Among the plants Pascal mentions are mugwort, California sagebrush, white sage, and black sage. Mugwort and California sagebrush are in fact both California native plant members of the genus Artemisia. Both are plants of the chaparral and the sagebrush steppe and are strongly aromatic. Mugwort is also known botanically as Artemisia douglasiana, and California sagebrush is known botanically as Artemisia californica. 
Black sage and white sage are both California natives of the genus Salvia. Both salvias and artemisias have long histories of ethnobotanical uses medicinally and ceremonially by first peoples of California and should be collected in the wild only with knowledge, permission, and care. They are all easily cultivated in the home garden, having purchased plants from reputable sources. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Happy spring. Something about Pascal's enthusiasm for the tastes and flavors of the wild-gathered plants and foods of his region is really contagious to me. I think it's the connection of it that pulls me. The connection to the soil and life cycles around me and the freedom from a grocery store or market. It's very similar to the pull of the garden. And I very much get Pascal's take on how wild gathering and foraging work hand in hand to both inform and extend our own gardens. This mindset embeds our gardens and us into and as a part of the places we live, rather than separate from them, which I think is crucial to a healthy mindset and intentionality with our gardens. Work with rather than battle against. We've just crossed one of the year's most poignant of thresholds, that of the vernal equinox, where we in the Northern Hemisphere experience, if just for a moment, a quality of light and dark. There is symbolic balance there, and balance is always a dynamic, rarely a destination, and one to not be taken for granted. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported and station-supported public radio program and podcast. If you enjoy the program and the conversations, please help us to build the audience by submitting a rating and review at iTunes. It makes a big difference to other people being able to find us. Better yet, if there are episodes that speak to you, share them with friends who might enjoy them too. Our greatest hope is that this program expands and helps to raise the level of conversation we have about our gardens and the power of them, to inspire and engage other gardeners with an inspiring and engaged community. Together, we make a difference. And now, back to our conversation with Pascal and his adventurous, new-old, wild-crafted cuisine. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Pascal Baudard, born and raised in Belgium and now a resident of Los Angeles and a lover and advocate of California native plants and landscapes. It was the desert he fell in love with first, the space, the scent, the stars. Developing a relationship over time with any land on which you wish to forage is a great foundational step, according to Pascal, as well as being aware of the overall health of any environment in which you might collect. Once you are familiar and intimate with a place, its seasons and its plant palette, you will see windfall leaves as candies, stems as aromatic spices, and more. Welcome back. How did you get started on the journey to writing the book, The New Wild Crafted Cuisine, and documenting through the seasons your exploration of this local terroir, flavor, taste, food, plants? 
So it's really interesting. My editor actually found me on Facebook. So I was simply doing what I'm usually do. I would actually, you know, do all my work about researching and, and creating with, you know, local plant and flavors uh, and post that on Facebook. And my editor, you know, contacted me and said, this is interesting. This is different. And, uh, you know, said, do you want to write a book? And I went like, why not? I never wrote a book before. And the book is really my own adventure during a whole year and the way I perceive the environment. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, pretty much my life. I, you know, wake up and, you know, go outside and see what I can create. Uh, and the book is divided within the seasons. So you have winter, spring, summer, and fall. And it kind of explains my own journey in terms of what I have to deal with regarding flavors, but also textures and, and, and all the ingredients that nature can provide. And I try to go really deep in it, like even how, how you can use leaves and, and, and turn them into uh, candies, for example, and how you can use stems and use that as aromatic spices. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's very zen, it's very artistic for me. It's, it's like nature is like meditation. Mm hmm. Definitely. And you get that sense through the course of the book. And I, I love the the seasonal layout of the book and how you it's not necessarily every single thing is is foraged, but they are the shining stars or the 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 primary flavors of what you're getting to. So let's talk a little bit about the wild crafting brewer and then go to what you would be able to cook as a meal right now you know it's interesting uh, the um, the wild crafted brewer actually came from as an extension from the first book mm -hmm. uh, what happened is a lot of people really became interested by the, the concept of creating those interesting beers and sodas uh, from you know using their local terroir and I basically wrote the book because so many people had questions and were interested. I wrote the book to actually help people and say, well, okay, this is how you can do it. And this is how you can approach your own environment and how you can approach your, to research your own local flavor through the act of doing fermentation. And in this case, it will be mostly alcoholic fermentation. Mm -hmm. But the alcoholic fermentation can be very low, uh, like making wild sodas, for example, uh, or higher, you know, if we talk in terms of beer or wine. Uh, but alcoholic fermentation is an incredible way to explore local flavor. I mean, I can go on a hike and, and just bring back plant, a little bit wild yeast, and can, and can create an incredible drink out of my hike. So describe for me the process from start to finish of making one wild soda. Okay. I did one uh, last week. So I went to my regular place. Uh, it's located in the Angeles Forest. It's called Reptacular. I just walked around and I started collecting mugwort, which is a plant that was used by cotton viking uh, instead of hops. So it's a very bitter plant, but it's highly aromatic. So you need to find a source of sugar to balance that bitterness a little bit. So I also found some, a little bit of yarrow, same thing, yarrow, very highly aromatic, something that you can use, but just a little bit, not too much. Then I found some uh, 
what was it, oxalis, mm -hmm. which is a very sour, lemony kind of uh, grass. Uh, I found regular grass, by the way. Uh, regular grass is kind of like wheat grass. If you juice it, it's going to taste really green, but if you ferment it, it will actually have some lemony flavor. Uh, what else did I find? Uh, California sagebrush is a fantastic aromatic plant too. So I grabbed that one. Um, and then I went, so I bring everything home. Then I added a little bit from my pantry. So I added a little bit of dry elderberries from last year. I added a little bit of lemon. Then I took, I had a starter that I made with wild yeast from uh, California juniper berries. Describe wild yeast a little in, more in depth. How do you how do you collect wild yeast, Pascal? Anybody can do it. If you want to collect like wild yeast, you can go even to a regular store. If you go to the store and, and look at blueberries, for example, you know, they're on sale right now, mm -hmm. you see there is a white coating on it. The white coating on the berries is basically composed of wax and wild yeast. So the only thing you will have to do is take those blueberries and you put them in sugar water. And then you close the jar a little bit and then you open it just a tad so that fermentation gas can escape. You shake it like once or twice a day and within three days you guarantee to have a fermentation started. You're going to see a lot of bubble, there's some pressure going on inside and you got a wild yeast starter right there and then. Ah. So you can do that with, you know, ingredients that you can find at the store or your farmer's market or you can also do that with berries that you find in nature. California juniper berries are loaded with wild yeast, you know. So are uh, pine cones. Unripe pine cones are usually loaded with wild yeast too. Wow. Flowers. Flowers are loaded with wild yeast too. Raw honey, by the way, is also a fantastic source for wild yeast. So there are countless sources of, you know, wild yeast for sure. So we have, we have the uh, California sagebrush. We have the yep. yarrow. We have the mm -hmm. oxalis. We have the mugwort. Mm -hmm. We have some elderberries from your pantry mm -hmm. and 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 also had a large amount of wild mint we wild love mint. wild mint mm -hmm. that means it's regular mint that went through and then i do a concoction uh, and my concoction is kind of based on the environment i had a lot of wild mint so i put maybe like 50 percent wild mint 20 percent mugwort 10 percent california sagebrush 10% of the sour grass oxalis, you know, and then the other ingredient. Uh, then I had enough uh, maple syrup to taste or raw honey sometime. And put a little bit of the wild yeast and I put everything into, into uh, a, not, not the wild yeast yet, actually. I'm going to put the jar with all the ingredients and the water inside the fridge and I leave it overnight to extract all the flavor. The reason I do that is called a cold infusion. I don't want to do a sun tea. I don't want hot, uh, too hot uh, temperature because I don't know of the bacteria living on it. Mm. Because I'm also not about food safety. I actually like to put in the fridge, extract the flavor that way. Then after a day or two, I can remove the plant. And then I will actually put my wild yeast inside and start fermenting it and put it into a bottle and then wait for 24 to 48 hours and voila, I got my uh, wild soda. And so it's a little bit bubbly? Yeah, well, it can be a very bubbly. And does it have any alcoholic content? Uh, 
on a short fermentation like that, it will be less than half a percent alcohol. So it's considered non-alcoholic. And in terms of the food safety aspect, how do you how do you feel the most confident that there are not undesirable bacterias in there? Well, I, I basically apply, you know, I did a the master food preserving program. So I'm actually a food safety advisor. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I basically apply any food safety measure I can use. You know. So the first one will be to clean the ingredient, to uh, extract the flavor in cold condition like the fridge, mm-hmm. and three, the fermentation process on top of it, you know, the fat that will become acidic mm-hmm. will make sure that you don't have any danger of botulism and E. coli and all this stuff. So it's layers upon layers upon layers of food safety procedure. Which you do cover very well in the book. So that's definitely there. When you're cleaning yeah. the the products, so when you bring your pile of mugwort and oxalis and everything home, how do you do right. the preliminary cleaning, Pascal? Oh, it's just cleaning cold water. There is nothing complex to do it. You have to realize that the food that you pick up at the regular store is way, way more dirty than anything that we pick up in the wilderness. Yeah. Because people will touch the, your food in the store, will manipulate it, smell it, cough on it, you name it. So it's, you know, they did study on the, on the quality of the food. And I think, you know, you find more poop particles sometimes on the food than you will find in your own bathroom. Excellent. You're encouraging me to forage more every second, Pascal. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Our guest today, Pascal Bodar, author of The New Wildcrafted Cuisine and The Wildcrafting Brewer, described to us how to create a chaparral spice blend and to collect wild yeast to make a starter for fizzy sodas, fermentations, sodas, and even breads. One of his missions in his foraging and out of the ordinary meal planning is to recreate the taste of his own multifaceted experience of a place in time. It started for him when he was gathering greens specifically, and it was just after a deep cleansing rain in the chaparral and forest, where the volatile organic compounds of plants and soils are at their most active and expansive with the moisture. He smelled the sage, the artemisia, the mushroomy scent of the leaves and twigs on the forest floor, and the fresh scent of new growth. He wanted to recreate the taste of what he was smelling. Almost, he describes, like trying to translate music into taste. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Jennifer here. Are there wild foods you collect seasonally or year-round? Nuts or berries, greens or edible herbs and flowers? I like the idea that people for millennia have been doing just this, handing one another a green, a root, an oil, and saying, here, try this for that headache, or rash, or stomachache. Try this to flavor that, or just, mmm, try this. When Pascal talks about the plants hanging from his rafters, drying and scenting his home like a witch's hut of old, and of hand grinding the dried materials with a mortar and pestle, because it connects him to it so much more, and because this hand grinding connection produces just the right touch for the fineness desired. Things you do by hand are like this. They're on a human scale. 
the fine art of slow living and slow gardening is this as well. A life lived in association rather than disassociation. As spring is here each day, no matter where we live, the light begins to build. What do the trees look like near you? Is the sap rising? Are buds plumping and swelling and coloring up? It is seasonal observation and the rhythm of it that gives us the understanding of a thousand and one seasons, not just four. What season is it in your garden? Here, as I drove recently to the more snowy mountains of the Sierra Nevada, the willows and native dogwoods along the creek bottoms were coloring up, warm yellow, deep red, and purple. And I thought to myself, it's willow coloring season here. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you're moved to share, send me a note on the contact form at cultivatingplace.com and sign up for the monthly A View From Here newsletter to stay in touch. Or leave a comment on today's program post on Instagram and Facebook. I'd love to connect. Now, back to our conversation with Pascal and his wild food-loving adventure. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to speak more with Pascal Bodar, educator, speaker, and author of the new wild-crafted cuisine, exploring the gastronomy of local terroir, published in 2016, and the new wild-crafting brewer, creating unique drinks and boozy concoctions from nature's ingredients, published in 2018. I'll admit to gathering miner's lettuce in spring and a few kinds of mushrooms with certainty. I'll snack on blackberries, on watercress, and on wild mint and fennel. But to create a whole pantry, to determine the best ways to ethically gather, clean, and then preserve by way of drying, freezing, salting, fermenting, this is another level altogether. And the fun of the independence and relationship this builds to our places, like our gardens, but a little more wild, this seems well worth the effort. Welcome back. In the book, especially I want to sort of focus on spring since since we're in spring and I, I want people to kind of really get a sense of one or two of the meals that you feature in the Wild Crafted Cuisine and then maybe you can recommend a, a pairing of one of your wild crafting brewer drinks to make with it. Um, mm-hmm. First, I would like you to talk to us about your Chaparral Wild Spice Blend and then your White Fur Sugar. Because I feel like these are creations that almost anybody can put together and they will add this very wide sense of what you're talking about with relative ease. Yes, and this is a good example of stuff that you can present in your garden. Local mm-hmm. flavor is basically composed of white sage, black sage, California sagebrush, California bay, garlic, peppercorn, and salt. And sometime I will add a little bit more of whatever I can find. Sometimes I even add a little bit of epazote. Just repeat for us that last ingredient and spell that for us. That's not one I'm familiar with. Epazote is a spice that is used mostly in Mexico. It's the flavor of Los Angeles. It's a mix of spiciness and gasoline. Ah, okay. <laughs> and it, it's used, uh, it's an aqua taste. Uh, 
but it's used mostly uh, in Mexico with beans because it's actually a natural beano. Mm. So you you can avoid the flatulence that way. Okay. If you have never tried it, uh, the first time is like, ooh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> and then the Chaparral Wild Spice Blend. Um, yeah. Um, but it's a really interesting representation of, of the flavor of California right there and then. Mm-hmm. It's sagey, it's, it, it works on everything. It works on fish, it works on meat. I use it on cheese. Uh, and it, you know, if you're American, you will use it on popcorn. And if you're from Belgium, you will use it on French fries. It <laughs> just works on everything. It's so describe amazing. how you make it in the kind of quantities you use. You so you collect all of the all of the ingredients, mm-hmm. and then you they're all dry, and you what? Yep. How do you, yeah? And so describe the process of me. Basically, just get the plant, and then I will dehydrate them. Uh, just let them hang. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my place was like a, a witch place. You have all those plants hanging from the ceiling and stuff. <laughs> uh, so very slow. Uh, and once they are dry, uh, I basically store them in jars. And then I use my, I have a mocajete, a stone, Mexican stone grinder. Mm-hmm. And I will mix all those ingredients together and then grind it by hand. Mm-hmm. I, I love using stone tool like mocajete uh, because it's, you really get a strong connection to your food. Yeah. You could use a coffee grinder if you wanted to, but you can never achieve the texture of, you know, things that you do by hand. Yeah. Uh, and it's really composed of the formula is right there, or the six gram peppercorn, five, five gram white sage, four grams California sagebrush, five grams black sage, one gram epazote, which is op- optional. I love garlic, 32 grams, uh, 30 grams of salt, which I made myself from uh, seawater, not from Los Angeles, by the way all the way from Northern California, Mm -hmm. and then one gram of California Bay. Mm. And it varies a little bit. Those those days, I think I put maybe three grams of California sagebrush instead of four. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a base. That's my base right there. It's a fantastic flavor. Everybody loves it. And then... um, And the the, white for sugar. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that. The white fur sugar is super easy. You basically, you know, take a little bit of white fur needle, you dehydrate them, and then you put them in a coffee grinder or a mocajete if you have one, and you put, for example, 12, gra- 12 grams of of sugar and 5 grams of white fur needle. Mm. And then you crush everything together, and it's like pine candy. I mean, mm. you just... You, you can do pastry with it. You can put that on ice cream, all kinds of different use it. It tastes like the mountains. It tastes like pine, but in a very good way. Nothing remotely close to pine salt. It's and lemony. It's exotic. It's, it has tangerine quality. It, unbelievable. Okay, so my favorite application of this in the book, I'm sure you can see this coming, Pascal, is where you use the pine sugar on the acorn grubs. Talk about that <laughs> dish. Yes. You want me to talk about insect? Well, it, insects are really part of the environment too, and it's really only in Europe and I think North America where insects are not really explored as a food source. We are alive today. I'm convinced we are alive today because our ancestors ate insects. Mm-hmm. 
it was part of the diet and in any if you go back to uh, primitive societies or early societies um, you will find that pretty much every single one of them eat insect is a very mm -hmm. important food source in terms of protein and grubs will be an important food source instead of fat I'm sure my ancestor in Belgium 10,000 years ago would have eaten them it makes sense mm -hmm. So we kind of poo-poo it right now in, uh, in North America and Europe, and it's coming back a little bit more. Uh, but it's super sustainable. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of resource to actually even farm it. I, I have my own mealworm farm, for example. But it's also one way to not waste anything. Right. So if I go and gather acorn, and my acorn has been eaten by a grub, guess what? The grub is edible. Yeah. It's very nutty, by the way. It's a fantastic source of fat. Uh, so it's super good for you in the same time. You know, lo locally, when I did some, I was doing some study on, on native food locally, and I think the, the cuisine 10,000 years ago was probably very close to Oaxaca cuisine. Yeah. You know, so you're talking caterpillar, uh, you're talking crickets. So there are mention of those in native cuisine, crickets and and grasshoppers, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Caterpillar was a huge deal. I think it was a white sphinx moth caterpillar. It was eaten and is still eaten in Mexico. Yeah. So super sustainable in the same time. And a white sphinx moth caterpillar is pretty big if I if I'm picturing yeah, the right caterpillar in its last yeah. instar. It's a it's a meal. Yeah, it's uh, related to uh, you know the it looks like the tomato mm -hmm. hornworm. What do you call that? Horn, horn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is edible, by the way. So it's a good example of that, yeah. that one. You want to leave some to grow up into maturity and some to feed the birds. So don't eat all your grubs from your garden. But it's it was a fascinating thing. And so I'm not really being, I'm being glib, but I am also not being glib because I remember as a young woman, I traveled through Southeast Asia uh, with my husband-to-be at the time. And and we were served grubs several times and it was it was a big challenge to our own understanding of what is food and what is not food but it was clearly a staple of their the the food in the village that we were in at that time and you know when you think about putting the white fur sugar on them or putting the chaparral wild spice blend and the way you talk about eating them, it challenges us to rethink some of our biases and why they're there. It's, it's completely cultural. I mean, 10 years ago, I would have been disgusted at the idea of eating insect and bit by bit, you know, you get used to it. And at this point, I, it's really not a problem. I just looked at it as another food. Yeah. I mean, look at shrimp. Look at shrimp. It looks right. completely like an insect. Yes. Yeah. What about crabs? It luckily you know? cooks up a little better than you described the grub being cooked up with the heat <laughs> thing. Yeah, that was that was interesting. So for for listeners, definitely check that part out. Fascinating. So if you were to have a meal tomorrow night, uh, and you were going to fix something for us coming to dinner, what would you what would you fix in the middle of say? you know, the, the end of March, beginning of April, what would be a, a possible dinner? And what which one of your wild-crafted drinks would you serve with it? I would do a mix, really, of bitter and mushroom. 
Mm. Um, because you are going to have a lot of interesting plants. Again, we go back to like the dandelion and what else? Thistles, uh, nettle, which mm-hmm. is not too bitter, uh, but it's pretty good. Uh, you, we have tons of wild mustard, by the way, uh, wild radish and all that. So I will do a mix. My, my uh, grandma used to make a ratatouille. A ratatouille, that means it's kind of like a stew of whatever you find. And I will bring her all this stuff, and she will mix it with potatoes and and put some mushrooms. And the mushroom will balance that bitterness mm. and make something that's really tastes incredible. And I will add a little bit of wine in it because I grew up close to France. So you have to put wine or beer if you're really true Belgian. Um, and it will be like a pate. It, it tastes nearly like meat. It's fantastic. Mm. Um, you know, if you, if you, you can even blend it and make a pate. Yeah. Um, just did a class uh, last week where we did something like that and we actually made um, burgers, vegan burgers oh. out of it. Yeah. And did you so. have wild collected mushrooms, Pascal? Yep. Uh, oyster mushroom. Oyster mushrooms. So the, okay. The, and then yeah. which of your wild crafted drinks would you serve with that? So for that one, I would definitely go with my regular mugwort and lemon beer. It's... Mm. And I will do it like slightly sugary, so I will drink it maybe after three weeks of fermentation. Mm-hmm. After bottling it for three weeks, so it's still a bit sugary, and the sugar will balance the bitterness from the the stew or the ratatouille that we made. So very, this one will be a very simple, earthy, country type of dish. Then you can go crazy from there. The next thing I will do is a fantastic salad. You're going to have incredible green at that time of the year. So you have chickweed, probably chervil. We have a little bit of thistle, a uh, small amount of fillery. I will do an incredible salad with all different weapons. For the salad dressing, I will actually use grass juice that I ferment a little bit. So it's lemony. Add a little bit of onion, garlic to it, and maybe a little bit of my elderberry wine vinegar too. Mm. And add maybe also a little bit of uh, maple syrup. Mm. Uh, I will be, I know it works, it's fantastic. But the best is for the last, is the dessert. So the dessert is actually a pear. And what I will do is cook my pear in a pot with all the aromatic plants that I find at the time. So that will be mugwort, yarrow, black sage, California sagebrush, yerba santa, grass. Um, and what I do is I put a little layer of lemon and my wild beer at the bottom. I put a bunch of pears and I put all those different ingredients and I cook them in the oven uh, 350 degrees for 20 minutes. So the pear put all those flavors, aromatic flavors into the pear, but they're also a little bit bitter, but the pear is super sugary from the sugar in the pear. So you have those pears that just taste like the forest, they're just unbelievable. So you remove them, slice them, and then on top of it, I will add a little bit of pinion pine syrup. Mm. That is the best. Pinion pine syrup is I take some unripe pine cone in a jar with uh, sugar, uh, brown sugar, and I leave them there for six weeks. The sugar extracts all the juice for the unripening pine and creates a syrup. It is incredible, like the mountains. And then I sprinkle that on top with insect honeydew. Mm, yum. It's crunchy. It's, it's like having, having like rice crispy. <laughs> 
That so that's is, what I will do. You'll be like, oh, my God, this is so good. It's a good spring meal, Pascal. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. You're very welcome. Pascal Bodar is the author of The New Wild Crafted Cuisine, Exploring the Gastronomy of Local Terroir, published in 2016, and The New Wild Crafting Brewer, Creating Unique Drinks and Boozy Concoctions from Nature's Ingredients, published in 2018. Both books from Chelsea Green Publishing celebrate a life firmly connected to the place in which you live, to the food you eat, and the spirits you drink. They provide not only philosophy, but also joy and recipes, from ferments to infusions and spices, from beers to country wines, herbal meads, and natural sodas. In the new wild-crafted cuisine, Pascal writes, as a species, we humans started as hunter-gatherers, then became farmers, and now we're simply consumers. In this process, we're losing our freedom of choice and we are limited by what is made available to us by others. A good example of this is potatoes. Presently, only 78 varieties of potatoes is available in the markets. But did you know there are over 7,000 types of potatoes in the world? In this process of increasing domestication, we're losing precious knowledge. For many of us who are now learning about local edible plants and foraging, there is a feeling of independence from the regular food system, a sense of freedom and choice. He ends, there's a happy marriage to be had between organic gardens of fruits, nuts, vegetables, and herbs, and the wild foods of your place. We're missing a tremendous amount of cultural and culinary identity by not exploring and creating a cuisine of all the flavors our untamed terroir has to offer. One of the things worth noting, in my opinion, is the many layered benefits of foraging non-native invasive plant foods from the environment. Chickweed, fennel, purslane, chamomile, blackberries, figs, and olives come immediately to mind in my region. In the cases of these plants, feel free, gather what you may while you can, and eat up. There is more where that came from. Bon appétit and happy spring to you. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible by the CSU Chico Research Foundation, NSPR, and you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music by Matt Schiltz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.